sisters and friends and young people and visitors all alike. We are most happy to have you with us this morning. And we're going to uh, have a discussion which will take a bit of time. We're going to make use of that discussion because the things we're going to talk about are, this morning are things that we can't ordinarily talk about in 30 to 40 minutes in an exhortation. And I hope you will find some of these things helpful in your walk in the truth, particularly in your dealing with others that you would like to instruct in the truth. Sometimes it seems that one of the first things we have to do as Christadelphians when we're talking to an alien or stranger, perhaps I should say better, uh, is when we say, well, I'm a Christadelphian. And so I say, huh, what's that? I'm sure you've all had something like that or similar happen to you. And so this morning, we would like to give a rather an extensive answer, which will extend into this afternoon. We're not going to make you sit here all that time. I couldn't talk all that long. We're going to have some breaks, and I will call them for you so that you'll have a little time to get up and walk around and get a drink of water, whatever. And so starting this morning with the material which we would like to discuss, we're going to uh, ask you to turn again to that chapter in John, which Brother Mike read to us this morning, because I think it has a very important bearing on all of this. Uh, logic and the truth. And uh, we want to think about what is that logic and the truth. Uh, Brother Tommy Jasinowski this morning asked me he says, he saw me putting that map up there. He says, what's a map of Palestine and the Holy Land have to do with logic and the truth? So I said, well, we'll try and get that straightened out real quick. That is put there so maybe once or twice in this discussion, we will uh, call your attention to where these things happen. They're mostly in that area. And it's helpful sometimes to know where they are. But now, starting with the subject, logic and the truth, we come first of all to the word truth. What is the word truth? What is its meaning in connection with the term of what we're about to discuss? Well, the truth is probably most clearly defined in the chapter that Brother Mike read to you a few minutes ago. If you'll turn with me to John 17 and look at that 17th verse. Jesus is praying here for his disciples. And by the way, if we become his disciples, he was praying for us then, in this future age, almost 2,000 years removed from when he gave that prayer. But in the 17th verse, he says to his heavenly Father, Sanctify them, you, my disciples, through thy truth. And then the question is, what is what is the truth or thy truth? And the answer is, thy word is truth. God's word is truth. He is truth in its entirety. And one of the key texts of this whole discussion will be, number one, that God's word is truth. And we shall endeavor to to compare that with 
what we would call Christianity spoken with a small Z, not a capital Z. There are millions of people in the world who like to think of themselves as Christians. The question is, do they speak God's truth? If they don't, then why don't they speak it? What thing happened? Because certainly the last person to speak to human beings with the direct authority of God was his son, Jesus Christ, both when he worked with them in his ministry in Palestine on that map, and also as he conveyed his last message, last inspired message to the Apostle John in the Isle of Patmos about 96 A.D. So that's, that's the picture of where the truth comes in. It's the things that were spoken by Moses and the prophets and the things that were spoken of by Jesus Christ and his disciples. And they constitute the truth because they have been inspired or inbreathed into his servants and written down so that we have a Bible here which reflects those words. So it is the truth that he has here that we're concerned of. But then he goes on to say, as I read a moment ago, thy word is truth. Thy word is truth. Now the other key text that we will just briefly refer to now, we'll go back to that a little further when we come to that portion of our discussion, is found in uh, John 1, 1, where John is inspired to write first verse, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now we shall discuss that a little more clearly when we come to it, because that text and what follows afterwards has been the cause of a great deal of stumbling on the part of those who profess to be Christians, whether you spell them with a capital C or a small c, is immaterial. Many who understand Christ and believe Christ uh, may not understand what he said, because as we shall see this morning, a great deal has been done to change that. So in approaching this subject, we're going to discuss God's word and God's truth. Now the Greek word for word, the Greek word for word, and that's sort of a redundancy, isn't it? But it is really, is a Greek word which we understand is called logos. And we have a little magazine in our group of people who uh, have a magazine, has on the front of it, logos. That's the Greek word which is translated word. Very very un unjustifiably so. The word is not just little words that you pick out of a spelling book. It's not that kind of word. The word, logos, means a thought, an, a plan, an understanding, and a purpose. All of these things combined. And in the beginning was the word simply means that God was the origin of all thought, of all ideas. And the world which we live in was not a haphazard thing which happened by chance, but it is in, in truth and in fact the work of the Lord. That is opposed in many cases by the work of men. 
the first human pair demonstrated that in the Garden of Eden, recorded in the first few chapters of Genesis, the first three chapters, in that when God placed them in an idyllic situation, in a beautiful garden, they were unable to keep one simple command. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't keep it. They broke it. And thus, the thinking of the flesh, as opposed to the thinking of God in his word, has been the subject matter in various aspects in this entire Bible, entire word of God. Now, to show you where logic comes into this, logic, as I say, is simply a transposition into English of that word logos. So when you think of logic, you think of somebody who reasons carefully and well. They've got it well thought out. And therefore, logos means that orderly thought or plan. And it might be used of other plans, too. We say, uh, I have a plan to build a house. Well, it would be just as easy if you were speaking Greek to say, I have a logos to build a house. Because that's what the whole thing is all about. So what we're concerned about then is how we arrive at this matter of logic, which is the word of God, and how it has an effect on the truth. But right away I must hold to your attention the fact that the kind of logic we're going to talk about today is not the logic of God mostly. We will use that to illustrate the comparison. But the logic we're going to talk about is the same kind of logic that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve said, we don't think the Lord knew what was best. The fruit on that tree looks pretty good. Let's eat it. Now that was a form of logic. That was a plan. And they reached out, partook of the fruit, broke God's law, and the sentence of death came upon mankind. And so, from that day to this, all men are mortal, saving only those, the Lord Jesus Christ, for instance, who have been saved out of death and resurrected from the dead and given a new kind of life, not mortality, but immortality, undying life. Now, we are principally concerned then today with the influence of human reasoning upon God's truth as by the divine inspiration of his prophets and given to us by the divine inspiration of his prophets or spokesmen. Divine truth in the scripture reached its peak when the prophets of Israel came and taught us as Moses did about God's plan and purpose and his purpose in the earth and it was especially given and clarified when his son Jesus Christ came to his nation Israel in the period of time which would be the beginning of our time period it's interesting that our time period is based upon this very important act Jesus Christ came and was born of the flesh of the Virgin Mary and he was born by the year in the calendar created after this episode happened, the year zero. 
That's not true. He was born about three or four years before the year zero, or the year one, if you like. So, but anyhow, the birth of Christ is the thing responsible for our calendar. We live in the year 1994. That's 1,954 years from that year in which Christ was supposed to have been born. In actual truth, studies indicate that was not quite true. It's about three or four years old. But we're concerned then with the fact that this is the teachings which Jesus left us that we're concerned with, and we are concerned with how the logic, the thinking, and the planning, and the understanding of mankind has had an effect on the word which God spoke and the logos which he has given to mankind. We're interested in the effect that, well, as far as that goes, on the effect that each had on the other because both were affected. So, at this point, we want to call your attention to a brief statement in Daniel, the seventh chapter, if you'll turn with me for a minute. We're trying to get ourselves oriented so that you will see where this is going to begin. In the inspired word of God, some of these words constitute prophecy, things that God told his prophets to write of things which are going to happen in the future. And in this seventh chapter of Daniel, in the first few verses of that chapter, we find that there's a story told us here in 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 uh, an analogy form of four great beasts in the third chapter, the, the seventh chapter, the third verse. Four great beasts came up from the sea to burst one from another. It says, the first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Now, we're not going to study these in the detail today, but we're just trying to give you a picture that God knew certain nations were coming. And our studies of these things in other classes have led us to understand the first beast was a lion, and it was representative of the nation of Babylon. And the second one was like, verse 5, like unto a bear, which was representative of the, na of the great world na nation power, which succeeded Babylon, and which was set up by the Medo-Persians under the Cyruses and others of that dynasty. And the third one was, verse 6, like a leopard. And that was another group of people who superseded the Medo-Persians and were conquered by them and were people who lived initially in that part of the map uh, in the territory we call Macedonia and Greece. This was where they lived. And this was where a very proud, prominent king came into being, Alexander the Great. And he proceeded to conquer the Syrians. He, is, the, uh, he conquered the Medo-Persians and took upon him the power to rule the world of that age. Uh, after him followed the Roman power, and that's found in uh, number 4, verse 7. Uh, uh, an iron teeth, uh, a great beast with iron teeth, 
devoured and feasted and stamped the residue of the feet that was diverse from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. That was the beast that represented the Roman power, and it has lived for many years since the Middle Ages. Christ was born during that period. We do not intend to go into a detailed discussion of this, but we do want you to realize that in the area of these four beasts, most everything we're going to talk about today had its origin, but it's still with us to this day. And it's where the origin started and what we have to contend with today as a result of that origin that makes the subject matter of our discussion today. All right, now, the fourth beast was Rome, and the third beast was Greece. You will remember that Greek was originally composed of a, of a number of small city-states. The whole Grecian Peninsula did not form an empire until later on. It was formed of a lot of small city-states. Each city was quite loyal to itself. Each city was very proud of itself. Perhaps the most uh, famous city-state and one which we shall consider this morning was Athens. Uh, the Macedonia was a nearby country, and in that there was a very prominent king who were involved, who was involved in all of this. But the main thing we're concerned about is these city-states and other adjacent areas. In that area, they were not so interested in warfare, which had been so prominent in world history up to this time and has been since that time. But they were interested in the things of this world. They, they put their minds to thinking about these things. They wanted to know what is the plan and purpose with this world. Incidentally, they used the same word logos that we just used a moment ago and that God uses in John 1.1. Logos is the same word. And by the way, that has come down to us in English. If you uh, want to know something about the human mind, and you go to the library and say, give me a book on the human mind, they might not know what you were talking about. But if you said, I'd like a book on psychology, they'd know right away what you're talking about. Why? Because psyche is a word in Greek meaning mind has been distorted to mean soul, a disembodied thing, which is not part of Bible teaching. And uh, ology, the last part of the word, is logos. So it's the word or speech or orderly knowledge about the mind is what psychology is by derivation. The word has been transposed from Greek into English. We use it today. And think of all the words that have got an ology on the end of it. Every one of them came from that word. So we're concerned with the fact that in the days of these city-states, logic, the understanding of, of words and theories and purpose and function of all the things in the world in which we live became to be greatly thought about. Schools were set up. The first one was set up by a man by the name of Plato, who was one of the early philosophers in this school. And the school was set up, it was called the Academy. And uh, by the way, the followers of Plato were called uh, peripatetics, or in other words, Plato was a peripatetic philosopher. What does peripatetic means? Well, you have to know a little bit about where Plato operated. He operated his school or academy 
in a grove of trees called the Lyceum. And his disciples came there and met with him. Some others had come there before. But in his particular case, Plato walked around while he talked to his philosophers. You might not like it if I started pacing up and down here on the floor and tell you what I'm going to tell you, but Plato did. And he did that for years. Came up with all kinds of subjects, all kinds of imaginable subjects. People paid to come and listen to him and study under his guidance and become philosophers like he was. Peripatetic, what does it mean? It means walking around. So he was a walking around philosopher. That gives you a little picture of what one of the men we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about that man as briefly as the first of the philosophers because we want to briefly, very briefly, take weeks and, and months. Some of the things we're going to talk about this morning, if you wanted to go somewhere and learn about them, you'd have to go to college and you'd take a course in the history of philosophy. And in that, you would find some of the things we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, not that they're important from the standpoint of God, excepting in the sense of the evil influence they have had on later thinking. I emphasize that point. The philosophers were very brilliant men. They were thinkers. They were the founders of what we today call science, which is a Latin word, skio, meaning I know, knowledge. It's something very similar to, to science and logic, but not the same. Logic is how you think in order to get science, and science is what you get after you complete your thought in some cases. So the philosophers would come together and meet in the grove, the Lyceum, and they would listen to Plato extol about his latest ideas on the universe. No, no holes barred. Where did we all come from? What are we here for? Why do we do the things we do? It's really very interesting some of the things they talked about. But looking back on it from the age in which we live, some of it was a little silly to be honest about it. You may see that as we go along. So I would like to bring to you this morning some of the influence of two of these philosophers. Plato, who was born in Athens in 428 years before Christ. 428 years before Christ. I would also like to bring you one of, this is some of the words about one of his disciples who exceeded his master in the length of time in which he held forth as a philosopher and who delved into philosophy of a much more scientific nature than Plato had done. Aristotle was born in an island, or in a little town in the northeast of Thrace. And this is about the first and last time I will point to the map. If this is the Mediterranean, which it is, this is the Mediterranean, this is Turkey, this is Greece, and up in here is Thessalonica, and right in here is the town where Aristotle was born. Now, 
Aristotle is the pupil of Plato that we want you to consider a little bit this morning in some way, because we feel it has a great deal to do with our understanding of how logic affected the truths of God's Word. Now, before we go into some definite understanding of certain parts of the words of, of the philosophers, Aristotle being the one we're most interested in, it's necessary for us to call attention to the fact that many learned people in the days when Jesus Christ came to this earth had become deeply enamored, very fond of the teachings of the Greek philosophers. In fact, if you've ever had occasion to read any of the Latin works, some of you in high school may have taken Latin. They don't, they don't take it today. It's dead language. I had to go to labor through three and a half years of that stuff. And I can't speak Latin, but I could, I could read it for a while, but I think I've lost most of that now. But it has helped a great deal in remembering some words. But one of the, main, one of the important parts of, of these Roman people, after they superseded the Greeks in power, the great power that Daniel mentioned of, the, the lion power, which came along and superseded the power of the leopard, which was the Greek power, the Greeks were still very much honored in the nation which overcame them. Why? Because they were so much smarter than the Romans. If a Roman was wanting to run a business and make a lot of money, he needs somebody to help him with his accounts. Well, they could get onto the, the, the followers of the philosophies of Pythagoras, who was a mathematician and some of you may recognize in your modern math the Pythagorean theorem the sum of the squares of, the, of a triangle are equal to the square of the hypotenuse the big side on the triangle well that's far as we're going in math today but that was one that you'd want to get a man who knew all that sort of stuff he'd take care of your books for you and he would show you how to, to uh, use mathematics to enhance your business and many of these men were taken slaves in Greece and brought to Rome for that purpose. Many of them were sufficiently smart that they didn't perform unless they got a little more freedom, and therefore they were very highly honored. They didn't treat them very much like slaves. So Aristotle and Plato lived long before the time of Rome, over 300 years before the times of Christ. But their influence was still being felt. They were still very much approved of, and therefore it was inevitable that when Jesus Christ and his apostles began to speak and to teach the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teachings of the gospel, the good news, the teachings of the Logos, which was God's word, when they began to teach that, they came into, into contact with their ideas with many people who were Greek philosophers. And this is where we come to the point, without having discussed how these things influenced Christianity, we would like to point out the fact that it was the move into the Roman world, largely by the instrumentality of the Apostle Paul, 
who was called by the Lord Jesus Christ to carry out this work. He was sent to the Gentiles, the nations like Rome and the Greeks and so forth, and he was instructed to preach the gospel, which he did. He could say later in life that we have preached the gospel unto the world, and they had. Now, they were so successful that within 300 years after the birth of Christ, Rome, which had been pagan or philosophic or a mixture of religions, was in a position where the Roman emperor of that day would <coughs> proclaim that Christianity was the approved religion of the Roman Empire. And that Roman church, which was intended for the the honor and the respect of all Romans at that time in about 325 B.C., uh, A.D., I should say, that great, uh, em that great empire, which accepted and recognized as a a Roman religion was Christianity. They called it Roman Catholicism. And that church is still with us to this day, or what is left of it. So this is how the philosophers came in. They began to work with the truth, and one of the first things they did was to rationalize the truth and try to make it fit Greek philosophy. They wanted to harmonize them. They didn't want to give up the philosophy, but they recognized that Christianity had something far more than any philosopher ever had. The true teaching of the gospel offered a reward and a, a, and a salvation for death. No other philosophy did that. It wasn't called a philosophy at that time, but it came to be called a philosophy. And to give you the illustration, there was an early philosopher who was taught the truth, I believe, by the Apostle John. His name was was uh, Justin, later known as Justin Martyr, because he died for his beliefs as a Christian. And Justin was a philosopher. And philosophers were so proud of their philosophical background and their esteem in the eyes of the world that they wore a special kind of garb something like ministers used to wear when they wore their collars on backwards. And uh, they they had a, a gown which they wear, and when you saw a man walk down the street with one of those on, oh, this man's a philosopher. That gave him quite a bit of prestige. So when he accepted Christianity, having learned the teachings of John, he was baptized and came into the church, Ecclesia, he uh, was asked, why don't you take off your philosopher's gown? And his reply to that was, I have found the greatest philosopher. And therefore he saw no need to take off his philosopher's gown because he was still a philosopher. But now he felt he had the greatest philosopher to mingle with his philosophical teachings of Greek origin. So this gives you an illustration how the first indication we see, and we're going to give you a great deal more of it before the day is over, of how the work of the Greek philosophers had such a tremendous impact upon Christianity. 
And to summarize briefly what we refer to in this respect, we might say that the the reasoning and the ability to talk and to express their views, which was possessed by most of the Greek philosophers, was at first in conflict with the teachings of Jesus' disciples who were preaching the gospel in the Roman Empire. But then, as philosophers began to recognize, as Justin Martyr did, that he had found the greatest philosophy of all, then the trend turned, and instead of resenting or trying to disprove Christianity, they accepted it and tried to combine and reconcile philosophy as taught by the Greek philosophers and Christianity as taught by the, the followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. That activity was active in the history of Christianity, spelled with a small c, as I told you earlier. That, ten that tendency for the Greek philosophers on the one hand to approve philosophy and at the same time to approve and accept Christianity resulted in a tendency for philosophers to try to reconcile, to harmonize, if you like, the teachings of Jesus Christ with the Greek philosophers. And the two Greek philosophers whose ideas were most used in bringing about the revised Christianity, that's the word I've coined, just because I think it explains what happened. These people in the first few hundred years after Christ attempted to revise and reconcile Christianity with Greek philosophy. And it was that which has brought about the fact which you and I find today when we talk to people in other churches around us, we talk to people about Christianity, and we find ourselves running into a situation where people say, oh, you're crazy. You don't believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? Why not? Why, that's, that's the basic cornerstone of, of, of Christianity. And we say, I'm sorry, but it's not. It was brought in. And if you're familiar with how it happened, that it, happened, it didn't get a full hold on Christianity until about 325 years after Christ when the Emperor Constantine took control of the Roman Catholic Church and made it the state religion. And then when he found his, his uh, philosopher Christians arguing, fighting, literally fighting, getting armies out to fight each other to decide what was Jesus Christ? Was Jesus Christ a mortal man who died and had no previous existence before he was born and who died and was resurrected and brought to life. That's what Christians thought originally. Or was Jesus Christ a spirit who had lived long before and came down to earth and was reincarnated in his mother Mary to become the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he was really part of the one God of Plato? Well, yes, but modified. Even Plato got modified because Christians were willing to take Plato's ideas on God 
that there was one God in heaven, but that one God is not one but three. And the three gods were God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. This is how it all got started by uh, a battle royal amongst philosophers, none of whom were very well learned in, in Christianity, but most of whom were very learned in the Greek philosophies. And because of this tendency to, to change the truth and to change it permanently, and let me rest pause for a moment and call your attention to the fact how permanently it was changed, beginning with that Council of Nicaea in a, on this map in the, in, the, in the eastern part of the Roman Empire. When that Council of Nicaea met, Constantine called it and attended and presided over it. And he wasn't even a Christian. He said, I'm an emperor. I'm telling you what to do. So he lined up his people and he told them, this is what I want. Now get me a statement of what you think Christianity says about Jesus Christ. And you other fellows that want to put the philosophers in, you tell me what the philosophers would have a change to. And we're going to decide today what it's going to be from this point forward, by law, by the command of the Roman emperor. And the net result was something which some of you may have read in your studies. Roman Catholics understand it. It's called the Nicene Creed. Some call it the Athanasian Creed. There are modifications of the same thing. But the Nicene Creed is, by many men, has been remarked to be one of the most implausible unreasonable pieces of philosophy that ever came down the pike. It was a result of putting together the views of all these churchmen that were called together into this city of Nicaea in the Eastern Roman Empire. And they, in their turn, formed Christianity. So that from this point forward, the Trinity was expressive of the one God of Israel. And, of course, Jews were horrified because all Jews from that day to this, as well as from Moses' day till this, were very satisfied to refer to God in the terms that God addressed himself to Israel. He was the Lord God. He was the, the Holy One of Israel. The Holy One of Israel. Here, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one God. And they could not reconcile changing God into a liar and saying, you didn't really mean one God, you meant one God made out of three. And so, from that point forward. Now bear in mind, 325 A.D., we're living in 1950, 1994, and that's a long time back. When Protestantism came into uh, operation many years later, and people withdrew from the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church and the Reformation took place, the Reformation was not very successful because it did little more than modify some of the previous views. Nobody, almost no religion, dared to modify that Nicene Creed or that belief in a trinity. And even Protestants, if you try to discuss the Trinity with them and you, and you let it be known that you do not recognize that the Trinity is even, it is even taught in the Scriptures. They 
become very excited, very angry sometimes. I had one man tell me I was I was going to hell and I was on the road fast. Because I didn't believe that doctrine of the Trinity. So don't be surprised even today. But look at there. That comes to us from way back in these old Bible lands. And it comes to us through the Roman Empire. And it's, it's a worldwide belief. Not just Catholics alone. The doctrine of the Trinity is believed by most Protestant sects as well as Catholics. And so do many other things. Well, that's part of what we want to discuss about. Now, something I wanted to do for you today, I wanted to uh, call your attention to the fact of some of the things that these uh, these two philosophers believe. And I think we will see one some of the means whereby God's will was going to be done. Now, God knew what was going to happen. We read in Daniel that he knew that there were going to be four great world empires, followed by a broken up period, which would result after many years in the return of his son to set up his kingdom upon this earth. There has never been a world empire since the Roman Empire became divided into its component parts. So, uh, I would like to point out that considering Plato, his reasoning on things I mean, he looked around him and said, this is what I think about it. Led him to believe that the source of all knowledge and ideas was a supreme being who he termed the Demiurge. Now, you don't hear that phrase today very often unless you read some philosophical readings. The Demiurge was what he felt was the answer. But when he boiled it all down to what he meant by it, he said he thought it was... It was a one God. They didn't necessarily use the term God, but he says this is something which is the source of all knowledge, but he felt that all knowledge was in the minds of the Demiurge, and it was distributed by various means to his creatures on earth, who came to be known, of course, as human beings. And that was allowed to trickle, trickle down, and if we believe his philosophy the Demiurge would bless us with more knowledge if we disbelieved them we might find ourselves being in serious problems in our, in our personal life now bear in mind the teachings of Plato did not offer any reward after death neither did it offer any punishment after death what Greek pagan philosophy did and that was left pretty much undisturbed and then after Plato, uh, I would like to, uh, to uh, give you this in the words of the students of this kind of a theory. This is the book on, on logic. This is the book on the history of philosophy. And on page 83 in our book on philosophy, I would like to read something to you because I think you will find it will give you a very clear picture. And at the start of discussing Plato, I'd like to call your attention to the fact so many of the things that Plato believed were expressed in words which later found their way into the New Testament and the Old Testament after it was translated into Greek. For instance, 
Remember the word world in your Bible? And most of us who are students of the Scripture realize that that world came from a Greek word, cosmos. It's a, a world or a world order, not necessarily the globe we walk upon, but the world order and civilization and everything that it's bound up in. Well, Plato's views most especially were involved on the cosmos or world order. He says, although Plato said that mind orders everything, he did not develop a doctrine of creation. The doctrine of creation holds that things are created out of nothing. Ex nihilo. But Plato's explanation of the origin of the visible world bypasses the doctrine of creation. He didn't let himself get involved with that. Too much argumentation on that one. Although Plato does say that that which becomes must necessarily become through the agency of some cause. And he put God down as that first cause, which would cause the creation that we know and live in. This agent, which he calls the divine craftsman, or demiurge, does not bring new things into being, but rather confronts and orders that already exists in chaotic form. In other words, he brings order into the chaos of the universe, uh, of the cosmos. We have then a picture of the craftsman with material upon which he will work. Thus, in explaining the generation of things as we know them in the visible world, Plato assumes the existence of all the ingredients of things, namely, that out of which things are made. The demiurge was the craftsman and the ideas or forms or patterns which were in the, in the mind of the demiurge were the way things were made. He originally had in his mind the concept of a man. When the man was finally made, he might turn out to be a drunkard. Well, God didn't have him, or the, the demiurge didn't have him in his mind as a drunkard, but he was still a man because he fitted the, the basic pattern. Plato departed from the materialists who thought all things derived from some original kind of matter, whether in the form of earth, air, fire, or water. But Plato did not accept the notion that matter was the basic reality. Matter itself, which he considered the nurse of all becoming. Now you can see his thinking was very confused, but it led to a philosophy which he encouraged others to accept their belief of how things started and how they would continue on indefinitely. Uh, I would like to, uh, to carry on this discussion a little further. We've gotten you to Plato, and when we come back, I'd like to get you to Aristotle, who is the second one we want to talk about. But we're going to give you about every 45 minutes an opportunity to get up and walk around for 10 minutes. Then come on back, okay? <laughs>